Hi, and welcome to Make Space for Nature from Nature Scott, the podcast that celebrates Scotland's nature and landscapes. I'm Kirsten Guthrie, and in each episode, I, along with my co-presenters and guests, will help you connect with and take care of our amazing natural world. In this episode, Tim Hancocks and I chat to Laura Young, also known as Less Waste Laura, an award-winning climate activist, environmental scientist and ethical influencer. She tells us what drove her passion for the planet and what we can all do to make space for nature and help fight climate change and nature loss. So hi Laura, welcome to the Make Space for Nature podcast. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. How are you guys? Yeah, we are um, good. The sun is shining, so uh, even better. And you're, you're probably better known to our listeners as Less Waste Laura. So tell us about your background and how you became a climate activist and environmental scientist. Sure. I guess my journey starts off at school. I absolutely loved the subject geography. It was my favourite. Loved a bit of colouring in and obviously loved the field trips, just getting outside and away from the school building. And during my time at school, I loved it so much that I wanted to go and study it at university. So my background is not just having a passion for this, but it's also where my academic background is and what I went to do after school. But I think when you go and study a subject like geography and environmental science, you sort of get ants in your pants about it because you learn all the great stuff, you know, the beautiful stuff about how our world works. But you also learn, oh my goodness, we really need to make some changes to be more sustainable and and live with nature and live with our environment much, much better. So I think when I was at uni, I really started to think, well, what, what can I do? What can I do in my spare time? What can I do with my career? And that really set me on a path to thinking about campaigning and and raising awareness for different issues but the name Less Waste Laura actually comes because in 2018 I did a New Year's resolution pretty much on the back of you know Blue Planet and all that kind of stuff to try and reduce my waste reduce my plastic and so many people were interested in it you know what shops I was going to what products I was using that I just decided to start writing it down and I hate writing so I thought Instagram's pictures so I'll just start with taking photos of stuff and so I made an Instagram page called Less Waste Laura in 2018 and that kind of sparked a lot of interest and, and it's now a little community of people online and ever since then I've gone from working as a campaigner for a big NGO to now living in Dundee and studying for a PhD so kind of it's been a bit of a journey but all of it's sort of in one way or another centred around environmental issues. Laura, could you let us know what some of the main issues and challenges are that you focus on in your activism and the the research you do? Yeah, I mean, I guess to start with my activism, because that's where a lot of this started, you know, I was really looking at a lot of plastic and waste. And even from a Scottish context, you know, in the years that I've been campaigning, along with many others, none of this is you know, solely to do with me. But, you know, we've seen single-use plastics banned here in Scotland and now wider across the UK. So lots of my activism started with that. You know, it was thinking about waste. But slowly it's grown to look more widely at kind of climate change in general, a lot to do with natural environments and spaces, how we create spaces in the places that we live, how we live with nature, how we not just tackle one problem, but think how can we get multiple benefits from solutions to problems that we see every day. And, you know, that's everything up to on the global stage. I've been at a couple of the different COP conferences, the UN climate change conferences, all the way through to local stuff, you know, what are local people doing and and the issues that we can tackle even 
on our streets or in our back gardens. But the research I'm doing as part of my PhD is looking at climate resilience. How do we make resilient spaces in our country, in our cities, in our local communities? But crucially, how do we get multiple benefits for people, for planet, for nature, and do that with community involvement? You know, how do we co-produce this with everyday people who live and work in these spaces? And how do we get not just something that, I don't know, helps prevent floods or mitigate floods, but actually brings loads of benefits, you know, increases biodiversity, creates more spaces for kids to play in and just makes places that are nice to look at. So my, I guess my research now is looking at kind of climate resilience work, nature-based solutions, but how we get the community right at the heart of, of how we plan that. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's I mean, that's very much closely tied with with a lot of what uh, Nature Scott is trying to do. Where our work is is strongly focused on the twin crises of climate and nature. Do you tell us how do you see the relationship between climate change and other environmental issues such as biodiversity loss or pollution or or anything else that you think is really important for people to be aware of? Mm, I think this is a great question because I don't know what you guys think, but for me, I grew up with climate change being a skinny polar bear on a little bit of ice. And that's like what I thought of when I thought of climate change. You know, it was ice melting. It was a faraway problem. And it was mostly impacting a few species, you know, most of which we didn't have here. That was my knowledge of climate change. And that was very much what I thought it was. But in the last few years, I think we've all begun to grow probably in realising that actually climate change intersects there was this intersectionality word that seems to be a bit more common now and how it links with all these other issues you know happening around the world how it links with the biodiversity crisis and seeing wildlife around us disappearing how it links with physical urban spaces that we live in how it links with poverty not just here in the UK but kind of globally and how often the people impacted by climate change are are not the ones who are you know causing it And so I think certainly for me, all issues have begun to intersect with climate over the last few years. But I think especially locally here in Scotland and and even moving to Dundee, when I moved to Dundee, you know, I was thinking about what is the nature around here and, and how over the years has that changed and how does that link with climate change? And I think that's becoming clearer and clearer as we get more research, but also just become more aware of the way that these things link up together. I think you're completely right in that, you know, that idea of the the polar bear on a a small piece of ice far away, it made the problem so much more removed. And and I think now everyone's becoming a lot more aware that, you know, it's it's right here in our own back garden as well. Yeah, and I think that's what we try to do with the the Make Space for Nature campaign. It's, you know, we encourage people to take action to fight climate change, nature loss, and, you know, see the link between everything that's going on and, and things that people can do on their doorstep at home. Um, and, you know, in the winter campaign, we've got 10 ways to help wildlife. Which of these 10 resonate most with you, Laura? Oh, I, th- I mean, there's some great ones out there. You know, I think it's, I love anything that gets you moving, gets you thinking. But I know certainly for me, I can't remember which number it is, but it's the one about, you know, taking action locally. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that is so important, you know, getting behind a community. So there is so much individuals can do, but see when people get together and say, let's tackle this problem, you can really make a lot of change. And I think for me as well, my context is I'm a student again, <laughs> rolling my eyes at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in a second floor flat 
I've got a small shared garden that's it's already in pretty good shape. But actually for me, you know, there's not a lot I can do other than some window boxes and, and kind of encouraging that. So actually I love grouping together with people who live nearby to say, okay, I might not have a big garden or I might not have X, Y, Z at my disposal, but actually as a group, we've got local community council spaces that we can get some better stuff in. You know, we can talk to our councillors and, and make change and everything from that to even litter picks. You know, when you join together with other people, so I love the one about, you know, taking action and, and finding other people around you to join as well, because so much can happen from even just a few people who might even start something if there isn't anything in, in your area when you move there. Yeah, that's actually really true. The, I mean, I think since we've come out of COVID as well, you know, volunteering is, is probably increased as well and getting groups together um, is, is a lot easier. And as you say, just heading out and, and trying to pick litter up, even on your on your walk, you know, your daily walk is absolutely something people can do. And are there examples of any other campaigns or initiatives you feel are making a significant impact on addressing climate change? I mean, this is such a huge one because I think there's some really great work happening on a big scale, almost a global scale, you know, there's loads of campaigns happening across Scotland and the UK, looking at big oil and gas, you know, thinking about how we move away from constantly going after new oil and gas exploration or projects. And I think that can feel quite huge sometimes, you know, it feels, again, maybe even feels far off, but I think there's some really great campaigning happening around that. But I also think there's loads of great local stuff there's loads of you know businesses and educational hubs whether it's universities or colleges who are even taking on projects like carbon literacy training and actually saying let's get everyday people up to scratch with climate and how they can influence in their own sphere I've absolutely loved over the past few years meeting people from accounting backgrounds and law backgrounds engineering people in hospitality people in retail who are all saying oh my goodness I can see how I can do my little bit for climate in the industry that I work in. And I've loved seeing that kind of micro action happening as well and and seeing all these different kind of industries. And and I just love that. I think that's that's great to see. And and it's almost this underground campaigning that's happening. You know, it isn't necessarily always in the media. It's It's not big rallies, but actually it's like everyday people joining together from their different backgrounds to to fight climate change in, in the way that they know how as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely and I think that's what absolutely everybody needs to do more of um, and, and talking of campaigning you know you're heading up a campaign to ban disposable vapes so you know what are the harmful effects of these uh, on our on our wildlife you know they obviously have a, a, a really detrimental effect we've, we've seen your your videos and um, your own experiences of, of when you've been out on your own walks and you're, you're picking up all, all of these what what uh, harmful effects have you seen out there? This issue came into my sphere because I found them on the ground you know litter litter picking them I was actually walking my dog just mm-hmm. on the regular route about four or five months ago and found one didn't really know what it was just thought it was any other kind of piece of plastic litter and threw it away and then of course you realize that if anyone doesn't know what a disposable vape is it's you know a small electronic item that is designed to be used until it's finished there's kind of a nicotine syrup inside and and once it's finished you you're supposed to throw it away and and get another one and so you know it's a bit bonkers to think of what this is but the problem I've really been seeing is I am finding them every day, everywhere. And I've got a dog. I'm a creature of habit. I walk the same streets almost every morning and after work. And, you know, you constantly find them. And these devices are not just single use plastic. There's metals, sponges, syrups, different chemicals, 
and a lithium battery. And you often find them and they're not how they were sold. They've been squished. They've been run over. They're maybe shattered into many different pieces. And that has a huge impact on our environment. It means we're getting bits of plastic fragments and microplastics, again, littered into many different areas. And I, I live in Dundee right next to the River Tay. So, you know, the, the water angle of this is, is really not far. I can see the river from my flat. And so, you know, these items are ending up in rivers and beaches. You know, these things are breaking down. And, you know, if you've ever seen a squashed battery or even just an old battery, you don't want to be touching that. You don't want to be going near it. And so, you know, these things are ending up in our environment and are causing a lot of havoc. And I think it just puts this extra strain. You know, all litter is bad litter. But when you get this increasingly complex device that is being littered on the streets, it is a big worry. And yeah, this campaign has sort of sprung out of of finding them, but also realising that, you know, millions of these across the UK are being sold every week. That's millions of batteries being wasted because they're ending up in landfill, which obviously they shouldn't. They should be recycled. They're also ending up in the streets. And so I think we need to get rid of, you know, this and and move people to the reusable option that's available. But I think it also sets a precedent, doesn't it? You know, these kind of devices do not sit within a country where we're going after a circular economy, where we're chasing after net zero and, and trying to reduce our emissions through things like consumption, production, manufacturing. And so, yeah, it's got so many, and that's, I've not even touched on the health impacts and, and the young people impacts of these things, but, you know, it's, it kind of came from there, actually, litter picking, and every day I'm, I'm still picking them up. I've got a tub of them in my kitchen, <laughs> which, you know, I need to stock up before taking them away, but they're just a bit of a menace, and hopefully, you know, there's loads of momentum just now happening around this, but hopefully we can just see more and more support for, for really regulating and banning these items. And, and much like the vapes, you know, people have heard of, you know, the, the plastic straw and the banner that obviously got a, a huge amount of public uh, attention uh, a few years ago. Coffee pods have had uh, a fair amount of attention and other disposable items that are, you know, single use or whatever it might be, you know, debated and sometimes banned. But are there any other products that, that you're aware of that, that people might be using every day and, and not even, you know, think that, that you know, there should be a, a better alternative or things that you found that, that uh, maybe people should try to avoid? Well, I guess, I mean, maybe this isn't something people use every day. Well, one of them is, I guess. But I've absolutely loved looking into how do we reduce our consumption of stuff? Because I think when it comes to toiletries and food, you know, there's loads of ways we can reduce our waste and, and make better choices. But it does feel like sometimes there's just stuff that you need to get. And, and how do you do that a bit more sustainably? I moved to Dundee, I moved into an empty flat and so had to furnish it. And I have loved going into the rabbit holes of places like Facebook Marketplace, Gumtree, Freecycle, looking at all these kind of places that you can find furniture and homeware goods completely secondhand and and stuff that's pre-loved. I love the pre-loved thing because often this stuff is pre-loved. When you go and pick it up, you get a story off someone normally about, you know, how they've used it and how they've loved it. But I've also loved um, looking into concepts like tool libraries. So this was something I hadn't actually used before moving here. And I had to put up some photos. This is a podcast, so people can't see this, but you guys can see some of the pictures (laughs) I put up behind me. And, you know, sometimes you need things like an electric drill to put up a few mirrors or a few pictures. And there was this stat that really stuck with me that was an electric drill is only used for nine minutes of its entire life on average. And actually, when you think about it, you're like, well, yeah, because it only takes 
well, for me, it took a few minutes to try it out in the first instance. But, you know, you only use things like DIY tools or gardening tools for, for a few minutes and then they get popped into the shade or popped into a cupboard for maybe weeks or months until you need it again. So I've loved embracing tool libraries where you, you know, mine's a tenner a year for a membership. You go in, you can take as much as you need, you book it out for the week and you take it back. And it's amazing to see that actually looking at consumption more generally, you know, we can find these really cool ways of getting stuff that's pre-loved at second hand, but also finding ways of getting stuff you need, but not having to buy it, you know, sharing things. I even went to a black tie event a few weeks ago that those don't often come around. And I rented a dress because I thought I don't need to be spending hundreds of pounds on something, but also someone else can wear this after I've finished it. And so it might not be everyday, everyday stuff, but there's so much stuff in our houses that we don't actually need to own. We can share, we can rent, we can borrow. And I think the straws and, you know, plastic straws, plastic cutlery, disposable vapes is all the surface stuff. But then there's all this other stuff underneath it, which we might not use every single day, but we can still find amazing alternatives to. And I think it's sometimes getting to the root of that as well. It's about saying, you know, what do plastic straws, disposable vapes and coffee cups represent? They represent consumerism, convenience, wanting to have stuff and wanting to own it. And actually it's about tackling that as much as it is, you know, getting rid of some items like, of course, the vapes and the straws and all that kind of stuff. That's such a good point. Just think I, I use the tool library here in Edinburgh and it's great. Yeah. It's also just because I, sometimes I wouldn't even know which tool to get. And, yeah. and on, on top of the reducing, reducing the amount of plastic and things consumed, I suppose, uh, pre-loved things also save some money for other things you might want. Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> Laura, you, you also attended uh, COP26 uh, a while back. Uh, could you let us know how you found that event and, and what you took away from going there? Oh my goodness, what a question. I mean, my first reflection was, so I'm from Glasgow and I lived in Glasgow at the time. So it was a bit bizarre, the world coming to my doorstep. I also think the last time I was in that complex was seeing One Direction. So that was also a bit bizarre, <laughs> feeling like I was there for a more professional <laughs> reason. Um, but I, I mean, I think it, on one hand, it was amazing because here you had thousands of people who had dedicated their career and, and so much of their free time to the issue of, of climate change. You know, people from all over the world coming together to discuss some really important issues. And also just for Glasgow, you know, it was a chance for us to really get our house in order. I mean, Scotland more broadly as well, and really think about what are we doing? You know, how are we going to leave a legacy when it comes to, to climate change? So COP26, the one in Glasgow, was the first time I'd attended this conference. So I think at first it was just a bit of a whirlwind, wasn't really sure what was going on. And you'd be walking around thinking, Joe Biden just walked past. That does not happen every day. But then also there was days that you were just standing waiting for a coffee for 45 minutes. So it felt like regular. But I think for me, it made me realize that although these conferences are not perfect, they definitely do not get us as far as we need to go. They are really vital in, in pushing forward negotiations and kind of global agreements when it comes to whether it's climate finance, whether it's energy, whether it's business relationships, whatever it might be, it is really, really important. And definitely reflecting on the past ones, there was 25 before I even turned up to one and actually you know, if we didn't have those, we would we would be in a much worse place. But I, I mean, I think it, it left me really feeling like no matter what is discussed at the highest level, change is going to come from the ground up. So if we're talking about 
reforestation rates in Scotland guess what that's going to be local people planting trees and you know there was the kind of wee forests or wee woods that came after COP26 and, and me and my community in Glasgow went and planted hundreds of trees and I thought you know that was a that was a global leader talking about that but that is everyday people putting putting those trees in the ground and and I think that comes with with a lot of this stuff it's actually you know if we're talking about getting people out of cars and, and getting them onto active transport that means you know working with people to help them see the best cycling routes, the best way to get around. And, you know, when we talk about anything, you know, biodiversity, fashion, business, money, you know, it really does come down to to kind of communicating that back and, and seeing how we can make that change. And I went to COP27 in Egypt and, and really felt the same reflection coming back. You know, yet again, you know, we are talking about these big problems, but there's so much that we can do. And actually, I think there was something that, I think it might be in the Royal horticultural society I can never say that word came out with some research looking at the kind of back gardens that in the UK have been paved over between I think it was 2005 and 2015 I need to fact check myself on this but it was something ridiculous like three million gardens have been paved over in that 10-year period and actually we've got more land in gardens than in nature reserves in the UK and you know when we talk about increasing biodiversity and increasing nature Sometimes that does start with individuals and their gardens and knowing what the best solutions are. And so I think that's a big reflection I came away with was, you know, there's so much we need to shift leaders, global leaders on. And, and we do need that policy change from especially some of the big emitters and, and some of the richest nations who've got the money to go around. But actually, we need to always think, what does that look like on the ground? How can we encourage our local councillors, MSPs, MPs to be, you know, taking up, you know, saying, I, I love this idea, I really support this and I want to do it. I think that's always the, the big reflection I took away. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think you're completely right as well about the, the ground up is the, the way to tackle this, um, you know, because it's everybody's responsibility, whether it's individuals or communities or businesses and governments, you know, to address the climate change crisis and, you know, the net zero targets and, and everything that's happening that you, you read can be quite overwhelming for people sometimes. But um, like you say, small everyday changes is, is where it starts and, and what we're trying to encourage. For listeners of this podcast who, who maybe want to start to make some small steps and small changes or, or who have started um, but are looking for new tips, do you, do you have any easy tips or steps that, that anybody could take in their lives that you would suggest? Mm. I mean, I think for me, it's about sometimes it takes some time to reflect and look on what is your lifestyle like? Because when I did this New Year's resolution, I am um, back in 2018. So I came home from New Year's celebrations and had in my head that this was going to be what I was going to do for the year. I was going to cut my plastic, cut my waist. And I came home and you sort of look in all your cupboards and you think, oh, my goodness, everything is in plastic. Everything is unsustainable how do I even start? And at first I just tried to go completely cold turkey, tried to just be the most sustainable person in the world. And, you know, I remember having dilemmas like going to the supermarket and standing in front of the bananas and there was fair trade, but they were wrapped in plastic or non-fair trade, but they were loose. And I was just standing going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to pick. And that, you know, happened with loads of stuff. You know, I'd be standing just going, I'm in this dilemma. How do I move forward? So I think for me, I then said, okay, let's not try and do it all at once. Let's just try and take baby steps and, and see where it leads to. And so for me, I did this waste audit, sort of pulled out all my waste, put it on the floor and just started looking through it and seeing where it came from. And I realized that 
I was a student back in 2018 and 50% of my waste was to do with lunches out, meal deals, coffee cups, like just general kind of packaging from lunches and coffees. So I said to myself, right, well, that's where I'll start with. I won't start with trying to cut everything. I'll just get myself a coffee cup that I can take to cafes, buy myself a lunchbox. So if I want a jacket potato or some soup from, you know, a cafe, I can give them that to put in. And I'll just try and be a bit more thoughtful, you know, make some lunches before I go out and not rely on the meal deals and the constant packaging. And that's where I started. And for me, I cut half my waist. It was great. Never needed to take my bin out. It was fab. But I think that's a good example of what people should do individually. And so, you know, I've had chats with people like my parents about, you know, sustainability and that. And so my dad, his office is one mile away from a cafe that he goes to every day for lunch. And he used to drive a mile to the cafe, get his soup and his sandwich, and then drive a mile back. And he realized that this was hundreds of miles every single year just just to go and get a sandwich and some soup. And so for him, he was like, oh, well, maybe I'll just walk it. (laughs) And, you know, that'll get me some steps, get me some exercise. I can still go and support my wee cafe and get my favorite soup and sandwich and be saving hundreds of miles every single year just from that decision alone. And so sometimes it's small things. It's about saying, well, you know, what are my big consumptions? What are the, the, you know, the things that I buy every day and, and how can I switch them? If you're a coffee lover, what are the sustainable coffees out there that you could try? You know, if you love fashion, what are some of the pre-loved, you know, websites you can check out? What are some of the renting options for you? And it's about, you know, looking inwards because I remember I went to my grandparents and was like, I've got this reusable coffee cup. It's great. It's going to save me loads of waste. And my grandpa was like, do you think I could walk and drink a coffee at the same time? Are you joking? And he'd sit down. And so I realized though for them, you know, buying takeaway coffee cups and all the rest of it, you know, that was nothing that they were thinking about. But I do think, you know, if you, maybe that's, you know, the kind of beginner stuff. But if you've been on a journey, you know, maybe for a while, maybe you feel you've got to the limit of of, of where you could get to. I think that would be, you know, dig into some of the harder areas. I remember when I had to sit down and face ethical pensions and banking, and that was so boring. I was crying over it. But actually, I realized that there's, you know, loads of good we can do when we switch to ethical banks and and talk to our employers about our pensions, maybe, and and think about how we can get them invested in in a green pot. But then also just reach out, you know, what's happening around you? How can you contribute to to other groups that might be doing things? Might be a litter picking group. It might be a green art cafe. It might be volunteering at a tool library. You know, it might be something different, but sometimes it can be, you know, thinking about what's going on around you and how you could contribute in because sometimes you do feel like you've reached a limit of the, the stuff you can change. But also I think probably the last point would just be think of what sphere you're in and how you could influence that differently. You know, going back to what I said about, you know, carbon literacy and, and getting all these people in, in different industries, you might be able to do something in your workplace that could have a huge impact beyond just one person. The charity I used to work for, we divested our pension and that was a huge thing that we did on a company scale. And, you know, one person doing it's great, but getting the whole company to kind of do that as the default made a huge impact. And so there might be stuff that people can do in their workplace, in their school, in their university to have a much bigger impact beyond just themselves. And sometimes it just takes the courage of, sending an email to ask what the possibilities might be of, of doing something at that level. And I want to encourage people in that because it, it might be a slow burner. It might take a while, but there could be some really great stuff that could come out of it, whether it's, you know, making your organization 
plastic free or you know packaging free or it might be you know getting all your event stuff brought in in a sustainable way I don't know what it could look like but but you'll know um, in your industry and, and be able to make that change sounds great and you know so it is a bit like a kind of lifestyle audit isn't it it's, it's mm. looking at areas of your life that you can actually um make greener i certainly remember helping out at the, the local toy library when my kids were, were younger and uh, yeah that was that was a bit of fun and and you know i mean this may be an obvious question but i think it's quite important to to kind of ask you know what what are the potential consequences of of, of everybody not taking immediate and drastic action um on climate change and nature loss it's obviously a huge question and, and we kind of know the answer but um, I just wanted to ask you anyway. I mean I think one thing is stuff's going to change and and we're already visibly seeing that a little bit a little bit you know if you go to the beach now you're seeing litter like that's an obvious problem but when it comes to climate change it might not always be as obvious but we are beginning to see it. There's places in Scotland that have had bottled water on standby because levels of water in reserves get quite low because guess what temperatures are rising water is evaporating quicker than we can be storing it that's almost unheard of scotland's the wettest country in the universe (laughs) so you know we're beginning to see problems like that and then on the complete opposite we're seeing these wet and wild winters and we've had more cases of flooding than than probably ever before and you know that is not just because we've paved over a lot of areas and and we've got more people living in urban areas, but actually because we're seeing climate change having impacts on the other end, which is too much water. And I think when it comes to biodiversity, we're seeing less. We're seeing less insects, less birds, less wildlife, and they're being pushed further and further into remote areas or areas further away from people further away from urban spaces and that won't just have an impact on you know not being able to see them and of course you know we all love seeing a little red robin or whatever it might be but actually especially when it comes to some insects and biodiversity that are a bit smaller you know that has a critical role in our food systems in regulating green spaces and keeping the planet in this equilibrium you know we are so lucky that the conditions are all aligned in the way that they are to give us the, you know, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the food that we eat. And I think when we begin to see biodiversity declining, we begin to see real problems when it comes to this balance just being out of kilter. And, and that has impacts on not just us as humans, but of course, wildlife all over the place. And I think it's just a shame that we are beginning to see those changes whether it's, you know, so my granddad lives in Dundee and he's 87 and he's only ever lived in Dundee. And so he's got these kind of stories of of seeing the landscape changing, of seeing wildlife less often. And, you know, you might have these kind of, you know, the RSPB does their bird watch and, you know, we're able to now quantify a lot of the changes that we are seeing. And and it's a shame, but it's it's almost something that we need to flip and, and see as an opportunity that we've got so much amazing green space and more that we could have and that could host so much more wildlife and biodiversity that could really secure our future when it comes to being more resilient to climate change to protect yeah where we live for people who listen to podcasts like this or hear things in the media and think oh that's a great idea i should do that but you know sometimes there's a bit of a lack of a lack of urgency and you know that what what would you say to people to to encourage them to take those first steps in in their journey to to reduce waste or or make a, a small impact and and make that decision to, today? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one person standing up talking about an issue, it, it won't necessarily make a difference straight away. But we have a society that we almost have like a needle that we need to shift on certain issues. I think about, so plant-based food, for example, if you speak to anyone who's been a vegan or has eaten largely plant-based for you know over 10 years, you hear about their despair in the beginning. You know There was hardly any options available. There was hardly any food that they could eat in restaurants and cafes. But enough people have said, I'm going to change my diet a little bit for the for the planet, you know, and for sustainability. And and enough people have done that that we've now shifted the dial a little bit. And so you can go into pretty much any mainstream cafe, restaurant, supermarket, shop and find options that are available. And that's because enough individuals just stood up and said, actually, you know, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to try it. And then we begin to see that brought to market, I guess, as a kind of thing. But I also think, I mean, to even bring in the vape thing. So five months ago, when I found this vape and was annoyed at the issue, I actually went online to see who's got a petition I can sign, what what organization is already campaigning on this, because I just want to join in with what they're doing. And there was no one. There was no one talking about these items. There was no one talking about banning them. There was no one talking about the environmental impact. And at that moment, I thought, right, well, I guess I'll just start, you know, I'll do some tweeting, I'll reach out to my local representatives and just see where it goes. And now the great thing is loads of people are talking about it. It takes the pressure off me, but it also gathers momentum. We've now seen it mentioned in the UK government, the Scottish government, we've had debates, we're getting petitions, we're getting open letters, we've got everything. And so even if you're thinking, I've not heard anyone talking about whatever the issue is, or you know, there's not many people around me trying out whatever it might be, sustainable fashion, something to do with your garden, something to do with your car, whatever it might be, you can be the first one and, and people will, will come alongside you and will ask you questions and it'll gather momentum and then we'll see the needle being pushed and we'll be able to see it becoming a lot more widely available. And I think that's just what you have to do. You have to, you know, spark interest and and just gather up people around you. But, you know, don't don't be afraid to maybe be the first one to to give something a go, but but look for other people who are maybe doing it and, and that can really help. Yes, it's kind of normalising that behaviour, isn't it? And just uh, making it part of your, your everyday life. And, and talking of that, we're just, you know, going back to kind of making space for nature, you know, how do you get outside every day? What, what do you do to actually, you know, take a moment and just make space for nature in your life every single day? I've got a dog that drags me out. <laughs> no, but, but genuinely on that. So I actually, a, a little dog came into my life just before lockdown. So it was like beginning of 2020. And I have been outside every day, multiple times a day, not because I have to, but now because I love it. And walking is just an essential part of my day. I make sure I walk before work, after work, and normally have another walk in there somewhere. And I just love exploring the green spaces around me. And it's now an absolutely central part of my day because it gives me a chance to go out away from like screens and anyone who's working from home or working from an office or working in a job where you're glued to looking a meter away. It's always a meter. You're like, that's, that's your, where you're stuck. And I just love the chance to be able to get outside and see some stuff that's different, see some, you know, beautiful landscapes some trees, meet other people, get chatting. I absolutely love it. And I mean, moving to Dundee, I've loved exploring, you know, all the different parks that are available. I've got a few that are walking distance and then there's a few a bit further away that I can go and and check out. And I think it's just brilliant. And for me, 
it is about making it a routine having a dog helps but even without a dog you can make it a great routine to spend some time outside you can even pair it with some podcasts some music whatever it might be and you know I think as well I've loved even just trying to pay more attention to what's around me so there's loads different wildlife up in Dundee than there was in Glasgow I didn't expect that I wasn't really expecting to see so many different birds and so many different there's rabbits here which I love you know like (laughs) stuff that I just wouldn't have really seen and I think it's been nice to be aware of that and and kind of grow to appreciate the different environment that you're in. And so for me, it's about regularity. And actually, I'm a creature of habit. So often I just do the same loop. There's a great park called Magdalene Green, which is right along the river. Stunning views out to the Tay Estuary. Loads of goldfinches. Don't know what don't know what's going on up here, but there's tons of them. And I think I only saw one in Glasgow when I lived there. And so, you know, making space, making a routine and and making it a priority. And then I think for me as well, especially now that we're slowly getting out of winter, but we are kind of getting that lighter stuff, actually saying on the weekend, right, the window is shorter. So what am I doing outside? Like, where are we going while the sun is shining and, and exploring maybe bits that are a bit further afield as well? That's brilliant, Lauren. I think a lot of uh, dog owners will, will be able to understand that as well. I know Kirsten, you're in that same boat dragged out of the day every day with a happy little dog. Absolutely, yep, yep. She <laughs> loves her walks. But you know what it is, as you say, she gets me out. And, uh, you know, when, when you're stuck to a screen, it's, it's just brilliant to just think, yep, doesn't matter whether it's raining, it doesn't matter at all. We just get out and uh, we have a good good old wander. <laughs> Which, it's been brilliant having you on, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us today. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to, to chatting to you again in the future and all the best with your, your work and campaigning. Thank you so much. No, it's been great to to come on and chat. And I'm now staring at the sun that is shining and thinking, I'm probably going to go outside now. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Make Space for Nature, please follow it on your podcast app and leave a review or rating. We'd also love you to tell more people about the series. For more ways to connect with and help protect Scotland's natural world, go to nature.scot.